Okay, I, I believe we're going to continue here now our studies of Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Uh, the title of this message this morning is the, the, the River and the Tree, the River and the Tree, because that's primarily what the 22nd chapter is, is about. Let, <clears throat> let's remind ourselves of the fact that this is the very last thing on the mind of the all-knowing, infinite God to the churches. And here we are, we're in the church. And he tells us in the 16th verse, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. And so here we are. And it's a great concern to the Lord that we pay attention to um, what is being said here because in verse 7, if you look up there at that, it says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And so, as a matter of fact, the whole book uh, is written and intended to be a, a blessing to us. Uh, if, you'll, if you'll turn right quick to the first chapter of Revelation, um, it says, Beginning at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So this is Bible prophecy. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. And I turn to this so that you could read these words. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And so John then in verse 4 says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so there's a blessing uh, to those who study this book. And we have uh, been studying it now for a very, very long time, trying to understand uh, what it is that's on the mind of God for you and me. Now, some of the things that I have taught in this series are things that are difficult for us to fit into our little mind uh, because of what we've learned in Isaiah 55. Uh, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. And there are just any number of places that we find in Scripture where uh, this very point is, is emphasized. 
And um, we see it, and I, I've mentioned some of these things to you already, but I, I repeat myself for reasons that of uh, connecting the message here that we're reading uh, a little better in our mind. But in John's Gospel, chapter 6, and verse 53, the Lord said some things that were very hard for people to grasp. He was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And the vast majority of people who heard him say it uh, <clears throat> were confused and disappointed, uh, even angry to the point that they walked away. They left. And that's the same occasion where the Lord asked Peter, will ye also go away? And I think he spoke for the rest of the disciples, where can we go? Where can we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And so Peter at that time did not understand uh, the message from heaven. And none of the disciples, all during the time that they were with him, understood the cross of Calvary. Uh, they did not understand the resurrection in the sense that the Lord was speaking about both of these things. But they were saved. And, uh, and that's very instructive for us in terms of our reaching out to other people uh, as it relates to what people traditionally say you have to uh, know and understand in order to be saved. That brings all of that into question. Uh, what does a person have to understand in order to be saved as it's traditionally taught in the churches? Well, I think that uh, one way I've heard that answered is there are many things in the Bible that we do not understand, but when somebody comes along that the Lord sends your way to explain to you the truth uh, a person that is really saved is going to hear it and the Holy Spirit will help them understand it and believe it. Truth has a ring about it to a person that is saved. And there are all kinds of things that we do not understand. I'm up here as a Bible teacher and there's all kinds of things that I still do not understand about the very passage that we're studying right now. But as I study and think about these things, the Lord uh, uh, helps us see deeper and deeper into the things that he does say in such a way that it begins to make sense to us because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And so coming together like this and studying the Bible together helps us to learn 
to think his way. It helps us to learn that his way is right, whether it's been within our personal experience or not. doesn't matter. And so the thing that I have had to learn for myself is to stop trying to make God's thoughts fit my thoughts. And uh, trying to make his ways fit my experience. That's a big mistake. We need to read the scriptures as they're written and realize that God is the ultimate scholar of the universe and knows how to write, knows how to put in words on a page the thoughts of his mind in such a way that you can know what the thoughts of his mind are. And uh, he wants us to study it until we're in agreement with it. And he wants us to believe the revelation of himself and to not question it. Uh, other than uh, uh, having him answer things that we do not understand very well. The reason I say that is because he said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given. So the Lord knows we're ignorant. He knows we do not have understanding. He knows we do not have wisdom. He knows that we're lacking in knowledge when it comes to an infinite creation. There's so much we do not know. But what he's looking for is humble hearts that are willing to sit at his feet and hear his words. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so, again, uh, we're sort of like pioneers going into uh, a country that has never been explored uh, by men. It's completely new in many, many ways. And the Lord is seeking to introduce us to a completely new world because the world that we have known is going to go away. And the new world that he's going to provide for us is beyond our understanding and it's beyond our experience. We have never known what it's like to live in the world that is to come. And so, again, a lot of the things that we're going to look at today are things that are going to be hard to fit into our way of thinking and into our experience of life up to this point.
but we've got to stop trying to make what God has to say <clears throat> fit our way of thinking. That's a mistake. And so in Revelation chapter 22, and we're going to be going a little bit back and forth between the two chapters, 21 and 22, but I want to begin with um, what it says in, in 22 and verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. One of the things that I've known about since I was a little boy is uh, what's called pollution. Pollution. And I remember as a little fellow going with my dad to sell hogs at uh, the Jesse Jones uh, packing plant in Smithfield, North Carolina. And my dad uh, would load up a whole trailer full of what we call top hogs. They weighed about 200 pounds apiece at that point. And we'd take them to the slaughterhouse, and that's where they would kill them. Well, unbeknownst to me, there was a, a big pipe that ran from the slaughterhouse there in Smithfield down to the Neuse River. And uh, <clears throat> when you would be going with your, your hogs to sell them, you would cross over the bridge of the Neuse River. And just up the way there, about a half a mile, was the plant where the slaughterhouse was. And, uh, and I would always notice that down there near that river, there would be people fishing. And the reason they would be fishing, and I found this out later, is because a lot of the uh, things that were leftovers uh, from that process of slaughtering the hogs would go down this pipe and it would be flushed into the Hughes River. And so I guess in and of itself, a lot of what was going down there was maybe even nutritious, I don't know. But I would later learn that there were other industries that had their big plants near a river and they were dumping all kinds of chemicals and stuff like that into the river as well. And I can remember when I was very young, uh, some of the farmers and different people were beginning to complain about it because the rivers were becoming polluted and we're dealing with that to this day, pollution, pollution. And when the Lord looks down upon this world and how we have used it, because in the Garden of Eden, the Lord wanted Adam and Eve to tend the garden to take care of it and to appreciate it. Uh, and uh, it was perfect. 
everything was so perfect. But we have polluted his world. We sure have. We have absolutely polluted God's world. And I can understand better than I've ever understood it. Second Peter chapter 3 where uh, the scriptures tell us that the heavens are going to be on fire and the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. And how that God is going to create everything new. Look at, uh, look at chapter 21 and verse 5. Well, let's look at verse 4 because it, it, it reads better when you connect the two verses. Revelation 21 and verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, and neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Now look at that carefully. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Now just think about that. You know, all of us know the experience of going and buying something new. I remember the first new car that I ever owned. And uh, almost immediately, I began to worry about it. And the reason is because it had no dents in it. There was no rust. It was perfect. When I saw that thing in the showroom, and I bought the one that was in the showroom, brand new MGB GT. When I bought that car, and when I drove out of there and started driving home, uh, I was disappointed every time a bug hit the windshield because it seemed to take away from the perfection of that car the way it was in the showroom. And um, so I spent a lot of time trying to protect it and keep it perfect, keep it perfect. And finally, one day when I was um, going back to my car after it had been parked for a while, I noticed that it had a little dent in it. And uh, my first impression was, well, that's a real disappointment. Look at that. My, my perfect car now has a dent in it. And within a few minutes, I began to experience relief because I no longer had the burden and the struggle of keeping it perfect because it was not perfect anymore. And from that point on, other things would happen. And it would finally begin to deteriorate. And eventually it had a lot of problems as all things do that we first get when it's new. But isn't it a part of our nature 
to want to keep things new. Why is that? Why do we have so much appreciation for perfection? Even when we go to the grocery store and we look at canned food and we, we see the cans up there and one of them's got a dent in it. I don't know about you, but a, a lot of times I'll just slip that thing over to the side and I'll pick up a can and I'll look at it to make sure it's perfect. It's perfect. We love perfection. And so does God. And I'm certain as he looks down at his world, his heart is broken over what we've done to it. And of course, it's one thing to talk about the things that he has created in the way of things as compared to how God... Uh, God's heart is broken over what has happened to us uh, after being created in his image, perfect. When sin entered into the world and all of a sudden we decided that our way of thinking is better and that somehow or other we could improve on his perfection, which is what? Sin is. That's what sin is. It's man thinking that he can do better than God. He can know better than God, and he can do better than God. That's self-worship. That's what it is. It's self-worship. That's idolatry, and all idolatry is really self-worship. Anytime you see the word idolatry in the Bible, the first thing that should come to your mind is self-worship because that's all it is. It's devising some kind of image out there that can represent the way we would like for things to be, whether it's God and how he thinks or God and his ways. We want both of those things to fit the way we think, and to fit our will the way we want it to be done. And this is what broke God's heart. It's when he saw that. And uh, so the sin of, of the angels and what happened in the heavens was a heartbreaking thing. And what then happened on earth was a heartbreaking thing. And so we can understand a little bit better why the heavens are going to be on fire and the earth and everything is going to be melted because sin first started in heaven. And I don't know what kind of effects and ramifications uh, the rebellion among the angels had in terms of God's creation, but it had some kind of detrimental effect. And so we need to connect in our thinking the origins of sin, which we've done in some studies here recently, as we looked at the original sin was not in the Garden of Eden. 
original sin was in heaven with Lucifer. And uh, so when the heavens are on fire, being dissolved, God is determined that his will is going to be done. And I'll tell you what his will is. It's to make all things new. Forever it will remain new. There will be no such thing as the second law of thermodynamics, which is the disintegration of his order in creation. There will be no such thing as rust. We won't have to worry about rust anymore. We won't have to worry about things getting old anymore. It will always be new. Now, that's hard for us to enter into. But what's wrong with it? Nothing's wrong with it. But we've never experienced this before. But we will. Forever. In this new world that God is going to create. But the first thought here in verse 1 of chapter 22 is this river of water of life, and it's clear as crystal. Uh, and the th thought that came to my mind when I read it was, there's not going to be any pollution, none whatsoever. Isn't it wonderful when you go to certain places and you look at a, a river or certain places in the, when it comes to the oceans and you can look down at the water and you can see all the way to the bottom. People that go scuba diving and things like that, they can see just as good under, under the water as you can see before you get in the water. Absolutely crystal clear. Well, what's wrong with that? We love it already. Well, the Lord is showing us the world that he's preparing for us. And I'm telling you that all of the rivers uh, in the world are going to be crystal clear. Beautiful, clear water. And... Uh, The other thing that comes to my mind is the symbolism of these things because water is a symbol of the Word of God in the Bible. And the Lord wants us to be able to see and understand His Word, kind of like when we go through the riverside or go to the ocean we like to look down and be able to see down there but the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12 now we see through a glass darkly that word darkly um, uh, by definition uh, is something similar to a riddle uh, we, we look at life and, and it's like a, a riddle, it's like a, a puzzle, it's got some depth, it's got depth to it, 
And we have to think about it, and we may not really understand it. It's sort of like a, a riddle. There's so much we do not understand about this present life that we're living. And um, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will know even as we are known. Have you ever thought about what that means? That we will know even as we are known? Well, how well does God know you? How well does he know me? He knows everything there is to know about us. He knows our thoughts before we even think them. How do we fit that kind of thought, that kind of statement right there, into our present way of thinking? It's very difficult. How in the world can we enter into what he's saying here when he says, but then we will know even as we are known? That's a huge change in the way we will know things. Because we will know things the way God knows things. Not much in the way of questions left, is there? But what, what kind of meaning can you squeeze out of those words? But then we will know even as we are known. Well, I've been pondering that statement for several years, and I still have a problem taking it in. Uh, I just don't know. I just have to accept it as it says it. In some way, something is going to happen to our minds. One of the things that I know, I learned it here in this church, long time ago when the pastor made the statement that Adam and Eve had no such thing as memory loss and anything they were told they would remember with no memory loss whatsoever anything that God said to them <laughs> anything that they experienced out here in life they would never forget it. At least in their created condition, they would not. And so memory loss didn't enter in until much later on. But the reason memory loss did enter in is because it's where the sin originated. The sin originated in the thought life. The idea that man is as smart as God is. That's the reason we have a memory problem right now. When you put something somewhere and can't remember where you put it, uh, it's because God has cursed our minds with that kind of curse, memory loss. And it's getting worse and worse and worse to the point that God had to finally write a book 
or we would not remember the sermon that we heard last week or 10 years ago. So God wrote a book for us to study. And now we have to study and study and study every day just to keep things fresh in our minds. It's because of sin. And so along with all of this complexity with memory loss and so forth is the issue of things that are hard to understand that God has written in his book. And um, we mentioned one of them in John chapter 6 when he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is Romans chapter 9. And to go into this, it would take uh, probably several messages really to dig into it to examine all of the issues but Romans chapter 9 is so complicated uh, a number of different uh, denominational uh, doctrines have emerged out of it like Calvinism hyper-Calvinism uh, confusion over uh, free will and whether God is ultimately responsible for sin entering in the world the foolish idea that he's not sovereign if he doesn't totally control free will as well and so that's where hyper-Calvinism comes from but all these things are a result of man trying to make God's word fit his way of thinking. And it can't be done. And so Paul anticipated that when people in the future would read what he had to say, they would begin to cast aspersions toward God. In other words, calling into question his character and his nature that God is actually the author of evil and is ultimately responsible for who gets saved and who dies lost. And that is not what the Bible teaches at all. That's a failure to understand what free will is and how important free will is to God. And so having made us in his image uh, with a free will, it's critical that we understand that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each have a free will as well. But they have unity in the uh, use of that free will. And that neither person of the Trinity uh, would disagree on the issue of truth and right and wrong. There's perfect unity. Uh, and each has free will. And so the Lord is ultimately teaching us the only way you can have human government 
with everybody having a free will, is for everybody in society to agree on truth and agree on right and wrong. And if you do not agree, then you're going to have every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. And you cannot have unity. And again, that's what Franklin was talking about. People think that a man was not saved. and But I'm going to tell you one thing. Ben Franklin had more understanding than a lot of people that profess to be saved today. And that man understood enough about free will to say, Madam, we've got a, a constitutional republic. If we can keep it. He was talking about diversity in the face of the issue of unity. How can you have unity with everybody thinking different things about what truth is and about what right and wrong is? And this is where we are today. We're having a war in our United States Congress because we can't get anybody to agree on what truth is. People today are asking the same question that Pilate asked in the trial when he said, what is truth? He didn't know. And you cannot know until you read this book and study it and believe it, that God is the truth, that truth is not just an academic. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And what he says is the truth. He is the faithful and true witness And so when God tells us that before Jacob and Esau were born, he loved one and hated the other. People try to fit that into their way of thinking and they conclude that God predestined Jacob to be saved and Esau to go to hell. And that is absolutely not true. And Paul anticipated this with this question in that passage. That's Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. You study it on your own. Paul asks this question to future readers. Is God unrighteous? That's what he wrote. Is God unrighteous because he loved Jacob and hated Esau? Paul knew that people would not be able to fit that into their thinking, and he was absolutely right. Well, it goes on down into the 19th verse of Romans 9, and Paul is still anticipating people thinking evil thoughts toward God, and so he anticipated this question. Who hath resisted his will? Who hath resisted his will? Now, when you think about that question, Paul is anticipating that people have no alternative with their free will to resist his will. As though somehow or other, we really do not have a free will. Because if we resist it, we're going to be punished for it. Well, that's the way the natural man thinks. And so it's kind of like 
uh, a backdoor creation of robots. That God has created man with a free will, but gives him no choice to use his own choice. Because if you resist his will, you're going to be punished for it. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That's a sick way of thinking. Sick. Absolutely sick. Because you see, now listen to me carefully on this because this is so critically important. Truth cannot be two ways. It can be only one way. Right and wrong cannot be two different ways. It can be only one way. When God says this is right, he's talking about it in the singular sense, and there's no other way. When God says something is wrong, you can't vary what he says about what's being, what is wrong at all in any respect because it's, it's singular, how he defines everything. Everything is rigid. It's either light or darkness, and there's no in-between. There's no gray with God, and that's the way truth is. Well, if we come to God and we try to change it at all, then we are turning ourselves into God by saying that our definition is better. And so... Self-worship is really man saying, just like Eve, uh, yeah, I know that God has said that he is the truth, and uh, if I eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I'll surely die, but he didn't really tell the truth. I will not really die. That is exalting your truth above his truth, making yourself the arbiter of truth rather than God being the arbiter or revelator of truth. We're not the revelators of truth. God is a revelator of truth. And so when it says here, who hath resisted his will, Paul is anticipating that people are going to be saying, okay, uh, God created us with a free will. But the truth is, he's forcing us to do his will or he will destroy us in hell. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. God does not destroy anybody in hell. The person who resists his will destroys themselves in hell by exalting themselves above God, declaring themselves to be God and dethroning him and enthroning themselves. That's what Lucifer did, and that's exactly what the Lord Jesus meant when he told the Pharisees, ye are of your father the devil, 
and the lust of your father you will do. You just like him. And so the whole message of the Bible is this conflict between God and man. And this is what's central in Romans chapter 9. Now, if you look at the 20th verse of Romans 9, you've got the third question. So Paul is really driving this point in. You're, you're, God's thoughts are not going to fit your thoughts, and you're going to resist him. You're going to turn away from him. You're going to exhaust yourself because it doesn't fit your way of thinking, and it doesn't fit your experience. And so in the 20th verse, he says, or asks this question, why hath he made me thus? Why hath he made me thus? Why, why would Paul write that question in that same context? Why? Because it's man's way of saying, he made me this way so that I would sin. And so ultimately, I'm not responsible for the way that I am. He is. That is the wickedness of hyper-Calvinism. That's pure wicked. Wickedness. Hyper-Calvinism. Because it, it goes right to this question right here. Why hath he made me thus? I mean, if he was God, why couldn't he make me so that I would have always chosen right. I mean, he's God, isn't he? Well, folks, if we take that position, then uh, we destroy free will. And we turn ourselves into robots. And that's not what we are. We're not robots. And neither is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're not robots to one another either. They each have a free will, and they have perfect unity because truth is one. And God is one. Right is one. And wrong is one. And there is light and there is darkness. The total absence of light is what darkness is. And the reason the damned end up in outer darkness is because they tried to exalt themselves above the light of the world, Jesus Christ, thinking that they were the light. Okay, God says, okay. If you don't want me to be a part of your life, I'm going to give you the choice that you have chosen with your free will. And that is existence for all eternity without me. And so if you find yourself in darkness, then create your own light. If you are the light, then be the light in the darkness. <laughs> That's the way we're to think about it and understand it. So some things are really hard for us to accept when it comes to the things that we are studying here. Um, 
But let's go back to the river. Uh, I think it's interesting, and you'll find some of this in uh, Henry Morris's uh, study Bible. But it's, it shouldn't be strange to us that the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth is going to have many of the original things that he originally wanted. And one of the things that he originally wanted, as you read uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2, is uh, a river. Coming out from, I believe, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, there was a river. And it divided into four branches. And it it went throughout the world, the whole world. And at that time, there were no oceans. There were no seas, and there were no oceans. Because it was before the flood. And you didn't have land divisions until after the flood. You didn't have oceans until after the flood. And this clear crystal water came out from what we might think of as the throne of God in the Garden of Eden. And it was clear as crystal. Beautiful, pure, clean water. And I, I'm telling you, when Adam would go down to the water and look at the fish, he could see them. No matter how deep they were, he could see them down there swimming around. And he had dominion over everything. The animals, the fish, the fowls of the air. He had complete control over them. And the indication is, I mean, when you think about it, is he could talk with them. And to some extent, we find that even with animals today. That, um, I mean, birds can talk. Parrots can talk. Parakeets can talk. Uh, I saw a program one day where a dog had learned to talk. And you could hear the words. It was unreal. And all of a sudden here in the Garden of Eden, uh, the serpent comes along, which is an animal. But he's possessed by Satan and tempts Eve. And the thing that's always amazing to me about that passage is Eve didn't jump back and say, Whoa! Where'd you learn to talk? There's no surprise whatsoever. It was absolutely normal. Which leads me to believe that animals could talk, that they had a language. Ham back is another example. I always laughed at that. He was arguing with the, with the animal. Ham was arguing against him. Uh, yeah, Balaam, Balaam's ass. Yeah, I was just fixing to say that. That's the funniest thing. Uh, so there, there's examples in Scripture, you know, of that kind of thing, animals talking. And so I believe in the new world to come, animals are going to be there, and we're going to be talking with them. And they'll be talking back to us. And we'll have fellowship with them, a union with them, and a love. Just amazing. I my wife and I talk about it a lot, how exciting it's going to be to be able to go out with a great big old grizzly or 
silverback ape and sit down and talk. You know, have a conversation with them. Uh, anyway, my goodness, time goes by. But there are several passages. I don't know if you want to write these down. We're about out of time. But Psalm 46 uh, talks about a river that's going to make glad the city of God. And the psalmist David is talking about it. Also, Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47, if you start reading at verse 1 and go to maybe verse 12, and the whole thing is about this river. And God is showing Ezekiel this river that we're, we're reading about right here. In the book of Daniel, chapter 10, uh, he sees this vision by the river Hadikel, which is the same name of that branch of river out of Eden. It's that same river, that crystal river of water. And then in Daniel chapter 12, you have the same river. And he sees this, uh, this angel, uh, which is probably a theophany, uh, a person standing on the river in the middle with two other people on each side. It seems to carry the idea of the Trinity when it comes to this river of water. Uh, but the indication is that two personalities on the side are, are angels, probably Michael and Gabriel. But in the middle, there's, a, there's this personality clothed in linen standing on the water. Well, when you think about Jesus Christ walking on the water in the New Testament, it sort of gives you a little hint as to who that was, Jesus Christ. And he's telling Daniel about the last days, the tribulation period, and how that nobody's going to understand the prophecy that he had just been given by the angel. Uh, and to seal the book, because nobody would understand it. But here, in... Um, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 10, it says not to seal it. So it's not sealed. The prophecy of this book is not sealed in contrast to what was said to uh, Daniel. And the reason is because God wants us to think about these things and not try to make it fit the way we think. He wants us to believe it the way he says it. Now, next week, I'm going to try to come in here and remind you about probably 20 things or, or more of things that are going to be radically, radically different 
from anything we have ever known or ever experienced as compared to the way the Lord says it's going to be and the way we're going to experience it in the new heaven and the new earth. So our time is gone. We better stop right here and pray. Dave, would you dismiss us this morning? single point of light.